It's been a couple of weeks since we had a chance to gather. And if you remember two weeks ago, do you remember two weeks ago? I don't. I don't remember what I had for breakfast. But two weeks ago, as I go back and reread what we talked about, it was a bit of chaos. A bit of chaos at the beginning of chapter 23. Is anybody's life chaos? Raise your hand. Everybody's hand should be up. Everybody, all of our lives at some point are chaotic. So we encounter Paul, and he's on his way. The book of Acts has narrowed. Isn't it fascinating? So, so when you go, the, the imagery you almost have is like the big family picture and then the individualized pictures. The big kingdom spread as we get to this part of the book of Acts has narrowed down into the trials and the tribulations and the glory uh, of, of Christ's kingdom spreading through Paul. Two weeks ago, there's quite a brouhaha. Paul's plucked out of the brouhaha. That's in the original language. And, and in that, Paul experiences an appearing of the Lord where we started in verse 11. And in that appearing, God communicates two things to Paul. Two things to Paul. So if you look at verse 11, first, he tells Paul that he should take courage. Take courage. This is a word for us. That word is used twice by our Lord Jesus in a couple of particular instances. It is the same word used by Jesus when his terrified disciples see him walking on water. And the same word that Jesus used in John chapter 16. In John chapter 16. So in John chapter 16, we find this in verses 32 and 33. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Be of good courage. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. In each of these uses, Jesus is saying to those experiencing fear. So in light of this prophecy that, look it, when you follow me, it's going to be a roller coaster. It's going to be a bumpy pothole road and you ain't got any rubber on your tires. But be of good courage, because I've overcome all that. Whether it's in light of the prophecy like that, or an experience that would be truly terrifying, someone walking on top of the water. We can infer by the use of that here by Luke, recording the Lord's words, that Paul possibly was a bit fearful. He's human. Perhaps a little bit fearful after what he had just experienced. An incredible man of God, a, a man incredibly used by God, but human. And the Lord tells him to be courageous. 
in what you're experiencing, what you're about to experience. The second thing from that verse is the Lord assures Paul with a promise. A promise that God has a purpose and a plan for Paul. And there ain't anything. Jew, Gentile, government, whatever. There's nothing that is going to undo God's plan. I call such things a framing promise. I think of a picture frame. It frames what the picture is. It gives boundaries to the picture. It has to be at the fore of our thoughts. It has to frame our thoughts. And Paul, based on what he had experienced and what he's about to experience, needs to see all of that through the frame of God's promise. What is the promise? That Paul will be a witness to Christ at the seat of the earthly empire. So in what Paul was about to experience, he had to keep that because it wasn't as though God says, yeah, you're going to Rome. You're going to Rome. And hey, check this out. Here's some, here's some first-class plane tickets. I got a car coming to your house. There's going to be breakfast served. It's going to, you're going to ride to Rome in a cloud of ease. Well, no, Paul's never experienced a cloud of ease. We're not going to always experience a cloud of ease. And we know from the rest of the chapter, things start to get a little hairy. This is a note. Keep it short, Kip. All right, who's the jokester? I don't want to hear that. I've already, I've already failed you, whoever. So the question is, what is before Paul? I think we could answer that simply by outlining our, our chapter well. I keep going back here. I'm sorry about this. There we go. Here's our, here's our outline. Here's our outline. It's a three-point outline. First is, first is the plot, which is verses 12 through 15. Second is the plant, 16 through 22. And lastly is the protection, the protection. So the first thing, the first point on there is the plot, the plot. So the morning after, the Roman tribune, whose name we learn in verse 26 is Claudius Lysias, plucks Paul out of the fray. The morning after that, the, the, or that same time, the Lord appears. So the morning after being plucked out of the fray, and the morning after the Lord appears to Paul, a group of Jews, over 40 of them, gather together, and they're going to make what the ESV calls an oath. Literally to bind oneself under a curse. To, to declare anathema upon yourself. Put a mark on your forehead. That if I dare eat or if I dare drink before I kill Paul, I should be killed. Yikes. These dudes were serious. And they bring this plot to the chief priests and the elders one commentator says, since the scribes who mostly belong to the Pharisee, Pharisaic party are not mentioned, it seems that they most likely approached the group of the Sanhedrin. Remember, the Sanhedrin didn't believe in resurrection. Here's Paul saying, yeah, my hope is the resurrection of the dead. So they may be a welcome audience to a plot and the zealots bring their plot to the religious leaders because they need their help. They need the religious leaders to lure Paul under false pretenses. 
And they say, so you guys reach out to the tribune and say you want to you you examine Paul more, and when he's on his way, we're going to ambush him. That's, that's their strategy. That's their strategy. I've, I've, when, I, when I taught through the book of Acts in, in a, a past season, I always wanted to make sure, and I said this two weeks ago, I always want to make sure I'm keeping the book of Acts connected to the Gospels. Because Christ makes all these glorious kingdom pronouncements. Things are going to happen to his followers. Things his followers are going to experience. And then we're seeing those things actually happen in the book of Acts. And I think here we have another instance of that. So I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to John 16. John 16. If you still have that pew Bible, page 902. In John 16, Christ had just finished telling his disciples that they will be hated because of him. But lest they fear, lest they become worried, he says he's going to send them a helper, the Holy Spirit, to help them bear witness about him in the face of trouble. And look at, look at what Jesus says beginning in verse 1 of chapter 16. He says, all these things I have said to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. And here's here's the dynamic. Here here, here are the dynamic I'm after here at the end of verse 2. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. So so Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to experience a particular type of persecution. Persecution coming from people who think they're being zealous for God. Who think they're being faithful to God. Who believe they are defending God's honor. It's persecution born of religious zeal, but not godly, Christ-like zeal. So now back, back to Acts 23. That's what's happening right here to Paul. If you were to interview these men, or you're sitting down having a sandwich with them, and you're like, yeah, so uh, 40, over 40 guys are going to get together and you're going to try to kill this Paul. Why? Why? I'm sure some of the answers would be out of faithfulness to God, to protect God's honor. As Paul is preaching blasphemy, he's preaching the resurrection of a blasphemer. The problem is that their faithfulness was being expressed in godlessness. They were trying, they had bought the lie that they could be godly and yet break God's law. They could be godly and zealous and faithful to God, yet hate and ultimately murder. So a kingdom truth we could take away from that, quite simply, is this. Faithfulness to God always expresses itself in godliness, not godlessness. Now, it's very easy for you to fire back at me in a very scholarly way and say, well, duh, and I would understand why we'd say that. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? Sometimes more so than others. 
Um, one of the things that I've witnessed in our cultural malaise of the past couple of years is that sometimes Christians, because of the nature of who they believe are their opponents, I'm going to let you fill in the actual particular blanks here. Sometimes we believe that there's justification in using words that don't accord with godlessness. Sometimes we think there's justification in imputing motives to people, which is a, a bearing false witness. That's breaking God's law. Um, or having an attitude, because they deserve this. God understands. And write it off as though I'm defending God's honor. Myself included in that. Faithfulness to God, no matter what we are facing, always expresses itself in godliness. There's never a justification for leaving the realm of godliness when we're engaging with things with which we disagree. This brings us to point two on our outline, the plant. The plant. Verse 16 tells us, Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. This, this verse tells us a lot. First, Paul had a sister. We don't hear much about Paul's family. Second, she had a son. Third, it seemed as though they lived in Jerusalem. Fourth, Paul's status as a Roman citizen allowed the freedom of people visiting him in his barracks. You think God knew him? Of course not. I'm calling him God's plant. Planted there by God to assure God's plan for Paul to get out of this and to Rome would continue. So real quick, real quick here, I would add this kingdom point. I would add this kingdom point. God places people in our lives to accomplish his purposes for us. Nothing, nothing, nothing is accidental. The home in which you live, the family in which you grew up in, the neighbors with which you are surrounded, the people with whom you work, none of it is accidental. God places people in our lives, even those with whom we disagree or even find unpleasant. Can you imagine that? to accomplish his purposes for us. You wonder if Paul ever imagined that this nephew, who he may have held as a baby, would one day be used by God to spare his life. Or, think of this Roman tribune and the way he acts Here's a, God who, here's a guy who is part of a godless government that God uses to accomplish his purposes in Paul's life. God's greatest work in our lives sometimes is accomplished through the most unexpected of people. 
So stop and consider all the people in your life right now. Those you get along with, those you don't, those you have a deep abiding love for, those who sometimes you kind of, when they come in a room, they are all put there by God as part of God's plan for your life. So Paul hears of this plot and he calls for the guard and tells him to come and take the young man to the tribune. And the tribune takes the young man by the hand, which seems to speak of his youth. And the young man tells him about all that he has heard about the plot. Which brings us to the tribune's response that we're calling point three, the protection. Or you could put the sovereign protection. So the boy tells the tribune, and boy does the tribune response. Look at these numbers. Look at these numbers coming in on the ticker. He tells the centurions they're ready. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. Do the math in your head. Almost half of his available manpower is going with Paul. Why? Because God said Paul's going to Rome. They are going to do the first leg to Antipatris. A little less than half the way. The most dangerous part. Then some will return to Jerusalem and a portion will continue on with Paul to Caesarea where the Roman governor is. This is God's sovereign protection of Paul. God is using a Roman tribune to ensure that Paul gets out of Jerusalem and eventually goes on his way to Rome. Which brings us to another kingdom truth. And it's this. As God carries out his plans and purposes. This is, this is why I love that, the fact that God isn't like us. He's not limited like we are. He doesn't have limited resources. When God carries out his plans and purposes, he has every option available to him. Every option. Oh yeah, some dude's going to meet in secret and hatch a plan? I'm putting a nephew there. How are they going to get out? Forty-something guys? Are you crazy? Yeah, the, the, the Roman army is going to escort him out of town. This is our God. This is our God. He has every option available to him. Even using governments that work in ways that seem against him. Oh, wait, let me read that again. Even using governments that work in ways that seem against him. Against his word, against his Christ, Psalm 2, why do the heathens rage? Hear this, 21st century Americans. God is sovereign. God is almighty. He isn't limited to using only those who are his. He is not limited to only work through those who are in perfect doctrinal agreement with him. He is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. This is our God. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He says this. There is not a single lock of which God has not the key. I don't even think I should read anymore. You shall never be placed in a difficulty without some provision being made for that difficulty which God foresaw and for which his heavenly wisdom had devised a way of escape. 
This is our God. Now the tribune, Claudius Lysias, has some pretty good reasons for assigning so many men to the case. He saw this as a serious threat, over 40 men seeking a murderous ambush. He knew that an ambush under his watch would have some pretty serious job consequences and cranial consequences. Some of his soldiers may even have been killed. Who knows, which have only inflamed all of the issues. So what is his goal? Get this into upper management's hands as soon as possible. I'm clear. Cover my derriere. It's a family show. So he wants to get this into the hands of the governor, Felix and Caesarea. Antonius, or Antonius, pardon me, Felix was the governor or procreator of Judea from 52 to 59 AD. So the governor of Judea, this would be the same office that Pontius Pilate once held, for those familiar with the Christ story. Felix, and this may come out more, I'm not going to go into a long biographical because someone wrote me a note to warn me against that. Felix had risen from a poor and lowly background. Tacitus was a, or, boy, you get into this Tacitus, who knows, I didn't live back then. A great historian of Rome notes, Antonius Felix practiced every kind of cruelty and lust wielding the power of a king with the instincts of a slave. Isn't that weird? The power of a, of a king and the instincts of a slave. Why a slave? Because he was a freed man. What does that mean? That means at one point he was a slave who had received his freedom because of the actions of the emperor's mother. He was the first slave or former slave to ever hold the office in the govern of governor in the Roman Empire. He was known for his brutal responses. So there's that, there's that, 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 that fight or flight. There's that, that slavery, I'm going to fight and defend and fight and defend. And if I have to, the claws will come out. I'm fighting for my life. He was known for brutal responses to any who were a threat to the rule of the Romans. So, so Lysias sends a letter, which is pretty typical, to deliver to Felix. And we don't know. So if you notice in, in verse 25, Luke says he wrote a letter to this effect. So he was aware of the contents. It wasn't like, it wasn't like uh, uh, Claudius Lysias sent copies out to the press. But he became aware of the contents of the letter. And like all, you want to talk about nothing new under the sun. Like all politicians, he writes his letter to paint himself in the best possible light as the rescuer of Paul. He fails to mention that he had commanded Paul to be examined by flogging. I didn't see that in the letter. It must have just been an omission. But he sends this letter and the key point is the fact that is found in verse 29. I have found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death 
or imprisonment. In shorthand, that's talking about he hasn't seemed to have broken our law. That's what the Romans were concerned with. Lysias doesn't see Paul as a lawbreaker by Roman standards. He closes his letter that, by expressing that he indeed is a good soldier and he's getting it into the hands of the superior. So Paul goes off to Anapatris and on to Caesarea. So he arrives and, and Felix gets the letter and what he does is he meets and he, he, he wants to make sure that Paul's in his jurisdiction and Paul is in his jurisdiction. And then our story ends with Felix saying, yeah, once the other side of the occasion, of the, of the circumstance, oh, I got to state the point. Do you know how hard this is going to be? Can I bring this with me before I go? I'll be like a lounge singer. He said, they roast on me for destroying the pulpit. I got to stop this. I'm going to leave this in orderly. Oh, I got to stand here. I, so, so, but, but what he says is that I am going to hear you once your accusers, once the other side of the equation arrives. That's where we end. How do we then, how do we learn, how, what do we take away from this? Now, this is going to get risky here because I'm calling this putting the passage into practice. And why this is risky is because I have a couple of pictures. I think in pictures. I don't know about you guys. I don't, I don't think like in typed out data points. I just, everything I do is visual. Putting the passage into practice is what I call this. All right, now this first one, don't lose, don't throw anything at me here. Because this is, but I, I, I want this, I want something that's going to be just be emblazoned on your mind. You ready for this? All right, so my first putting this into practice is called find your phylactery. Can anybody tell me what a phylactery is? All right, Grace, go ahead. Just kidding. Uh, phyl so the, the, as an expression of, and again, we, we even talked about in the Sermon on the Mount how a lot of the expressions of the Jews were just mere outward expressions. They didn't have any inward love, any substance fueling those. But one of the... Uh, the the outward devotional moments of Jews is they would wear these phylacteries. And in it would often be a, a little passage from Isaiah 6, a line or two from the Shema. Oftentimes, oftentimes they wore it on their forehead and they also wore like a, a, like a leather band on their left arm about here because in theory that was closest to their heart. So they were keeping God and his law close to their minds and close to their hearts. So that's the dynamic. Now, I'm not asking, we're not selling phylacteries in the this, in this store. That's not what this is talking about. But I think there's a huge dynamic to be learned from this. What do I mean by this? I mean that we must constantly refresh ourselves. So much like, much like a Jew when, when they were up against persecutors or conquerors or whatever it might be, much like a Jew was supposed to refresh themselves in who they were as God's people, we have to do that as well. We must constantly refresh ourselves in God's framing promise. So Paul is supposed to be hearing about, he's supposed to be hearing about 40-something um, uh, guys plotting his death. 
It's going to be crazy. They're coming after me. What am I going to do? He's supposed to view this entire episode through the promise that you're going to Rome, man. I don't know. You know Paul will be like, I don't, I don't know how this is all going to work out, but God said I'm going to Rome. I'm going to Rome. You could send 440 guys after me. I'm going to Rome. He, he had to see what was before him in light of the promises God had made to him. So, for instance, for some of our framing promises, we would say things like this. That no matter what we're facing, God is with us. No matter what circumstance is before us, God is for us. No matter what circumstance is before us, God has a plan in all of this. No matter what is before us, all things are going to work together for our good within that good plan he has for us. And, 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 our future is just incredibly bright. Now, we have to fuel on those promises. We have to. We have to see circumstance through those promises. If, if we don't refresh ourselves in these promises, the circumstances will start taking first position. And they'll start dictating our mood, our, our responses. I, I walk my dog every morning. I'm just going to give you a practical example of how I try to do this imperfectly. Imperfectly. When I, when I walk our dog, Sebastian, greatest dog ever. When I walk the dog, the, first, the second thing I do is pray. I pray for you all. And, but the first thing I do is I go to the trough and I remind myself of these things. I preach the gospel to myself. I, whatever's, whatever's, whatever's coming this day, I want to be able to see those things in light of the promises God has made to me in Christ. That's my phylactery. Your phylactery will look different, but you've got to find your phylactery. You've got to be refreshing yourself in these promises and see the circumstance of the day through those. Second thing, I'm using the illustration that I often use, and it's very simply called windshield and rearview mirror. The picture of the windshield is supposed to look like it does. It's supposed to look blurry, because the rain is hitting the windshield so hard. It's supposed to be a picture of driving into a storm. But if you look at the picture of the rearview mirror is clear. So why do I say that? I say that because of this. One way to fuel our faith walking forward, walking forward is to look back and behold God's faithfulness to us in the past. Raise your hand if God's let you down. I thought so. He doesn't. He won't. He never will. And yet, with whatever's before us, what are we prone to doing? Doubting. Doubting. We, we see this throughout the story of the Israelites. Whatever the Israelites were facing, God, through his leaders and his prophets, are saying, remember what I did for you in Egypt? 
Remember the plagues? Remember the Red Sea? The Red Sea? That's, that's my expression that I'm with you and I'm for you. And I've got every option available to me as I do it. And what do I ask for? Just walk forward and believe that. Look through the windshield in light of what's behind you in the rearview mirror. I have two more and I'm trying to get through these fast. Next picture is a beautiful picture, but it's of mountaintops and valleys. Mountaintops and valleys. We must understand, brothers and sisters, God has made some incredible promises to us. And we need to refresh ourselves in those promises. We need to look back at God just being faithful at every moment in our lives. He's batting a thousand. And we have to realize that as we realize those promises, our lives are going to be full of high mountain tops and real low valleys. You like that with the voice? That was pretty good, wasn't it? It's going to be full of mountain tops and valleys. We must understand that the road we walk as we realize those promises is full of mountain tops and valleys. And yet, and yet, and yet, God's person and God's promises never change. So what oftentimes we are going to anchor our hope and our joy and our peace to the circumstance. And that's fun when you're having a birthday party. It doesn't work real well when the valley is low. And we would say that God is the same in both places. We talked this morning in ABF just briefly how Paul says, weep with those who weep and Rejoice with those who rejoice. So that means that's all part of the package. It's all part of the package. Lastly, lastly, we need, that's all of my, I ran out of, I couldn't think of a picture for this, but we need to beware of perception issues. So you see from this, simple illustration on the on the screen that one word is really big and one word is really small and they work inversely so as one gets bigger the other gets smaller and vice versa we must never limit god God has every tool at his disposal as he seeks to carry out his plan and purpose. Part of his plan is to allow us to experience the promise that he is with us, he is for us, he has a plan for our lives, and all things work together for good. That's what he said. But, but, but did you, if you could only enter... That's what he said. And he's got every, every resource available to him to enable him to remain faithful to us. This is our God. 
Haley, what's your sweatshirt say? Faith over fear. This is what we're getting at. I know. That, nobody's ever going to sit in that row again. Grace's like, hey, got you, got you too. But that, that's what that shirt's talking about. Because I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters, we live in a world that is scary. It, it, it is joyful. It, it induces great anxiety. There's sorrow. There's rejoice. There's everything in between. And what we have to do as we, as we navigate the, the, the roller coaster is just believe God and anchor ourselves in Him and His person and His promise. Imagine Paul talking, let's, let's say you get to talk to Paul before all that we've covered today. And, and, and you say, all right, hey, Paul, 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 wake up, Paul. Paul, you're going to Rome, but some folks here, there's going to be a bunch of them. There's going to be a bunch of them. They're going to seek to kill you. They're going to seek to ambush you. How do you see that working out, man? Do you think he could have imagined that his nephew would have just happened upon the plot and come to him? Do you think he could have imagined a Roman tribune who would just totally believe the words of the nephew so much so that he commits half his troops to escorting Paul out of town? I'm guessing the answer is probably no. Probably knew God was going to be faithful, but he could have never imagined in light of what was before him what that would have looked like. It does not matter what is before us, brothers and sisters. God can use ways. God can use people. God can use means that we cannot even fathom to accomplish his purposes. Never, ever, ever give up hope. God is sovereign, God is almighty, and God loves his children. Let's pray together. Father, you are just so good to us. Lord, I just pray that your goodness to us would become so apparent to those who don't know you that they would want to get in. And Lord, that you would show them that the only way in is through your Son. You will, you will, you will show them that the only way in is through being granted a righteousness that only comes by faith in what Christ has done. That's the only way. Father, for those of us who are in Christ by faith, who are the children of the promise, Father, I pray that we would walk in light of the promises you've made to us in Christ. Father, that we would be bold, we would be courageous, and we would be a tremendous witness in a season of our world that desperately needs such a witness. Bless us, Father. Keep us. Make the vibrancy of your face shine upon us and give us peace in these days. 
ask and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.